Good morning again, everybody. One of the hardest things that you and I will have to go through during our time here on earth is burying someone that we love. And I'm saying that even knowing that several of you have lost a parent in the past year, and many of you even in the past few months. And the younger we are when we have to bury someone, especially a parent, uh, the harder it can be. That's not to say it's not hard at any age. But I think especially for the very young, it can be very difficult to lose and then have to bury a parent. I came across a story this past week by a guy named Vance Fry that I wanted to share with you. He lost his dad at the age of eight years old, and, uh, and all the confusion and pain that came was often from the mouths of people that he went to church with. And I want to tell his story. It, it goes like this. This is him speaking. He said, people say funny things to a kid who's lost his dad. He said, well, they seem strange to me, at least. They said that you're the man of the house now. One aunt told me at my father's funeral, dabbing her eyes, bunched up with tissues, you must take care of your mom and sister. As a kid just finishing third grade, I wasn't sure what to make of this. I certainly didn't feel like a man, and I imagined that this honor wouldn't get much mileage in everyday life. One does not say to one's mother, I won't be eating my vegetables tonight. I'm the man of the house now. <laughs> Another thing people said once we started attending church was that God would be my father now. God, they told us, was father of the fatherless and the protector of widows, Psalm 68, 5. Could there be any more relevant truth for our family? They meant well, I know, but I recognize that the word father, as it applied to God, didn't have precisely the same meaning as the language used to describe a guy who lives with a mother and some children. Yes, God was the powerful creator, the source of wisdom, truth, and love, but he wasn't going to be there to help a kid with his math homework, throw a football around, or build a doghouse together. The architect of snowflakes and solar systems wasn't available for taking 10-year-old boys out for breakfast to talk to them about what sex means. God as father, it sounds nice, but he says, I knew better. A real father was in a home, not on a throne. Perhaps many of you have struggled with this idea of God as a father. What does that mean exactly? And this can only be confused because of our own experience with our fathers. You see, a boy who's longing for a dad has a hard time seeing God as capable of filling that role. A young lady who's striving to achieve in sports to please her dad may have a skewed view of who God is. And many of us, as a matter of fact, all of us had imperfect fathers, but particularly those who may have struggled with abuse of any kind, could really struggle with this idea of having God as a father. And it's very hard because we've got this perfect father in heaven whose character ends up being skewed because of our own earthly experiences of our dads. But since the New Testament refers to God over 250 times as father, it leads us to this question, 
It's not there. What does it mean to have God as a father? What does it mean to have God as a father? And this morning we'll be unpacking that question. Since this is a subject covered by several different texts, we'll be walking through several uh, from the Gospels and from the book of Hebrews as well. And guys, this is the, um, the presentation that's Trinity the Father. I'll just make sure you've got the right one up. It's the one that has the Father uh, at the end of the presentation. So I want to unpack that question. Uh, we're continuing this series this morning called, Who is God? Because frankly, I think all of our minds should be blown by the question of who God is. And how we answer that question is going to determine virtually everything else about us. You see, it's going to control how you view others. Do you see others as just a, a pain to your existence or sovereignly placed there and also bearing the image of God? If you, you, it, it, it helps you view how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a forgiven child, dearly loved, or just someone who's just sort of going through life, wondering what's the point of it all, experiencing different series of heartbreaks and happiness. What does all that mean? So this morning, I want to tackle that question. Jesus, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's the most profound question of all humanity. It comes to you and I today. Who do we say that he is? So today, I want to tackle this. I want to go through this idea of God as Father. He is the first person of the Trinity. And he is the Father of creation the father of Jesus, and finally, he's the father of all Christians. And we'll go through that last point and look at three different ways that he, that he exerts his fatherhood over all believers, over all Christians. So let's jump in now, and I want to start then with this idea of God as being the father of creation. Uh, first, I want to point out that he's the father, literally, of all humanity, all humanity, not just Christians, but literally everyone. And he has this love for all humanity. And I want to point out a verse that many of you have probably memorized, John 3, 16. And look what it says there at the beginning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God has this love for all humanity, this general love for everyone. It says there at the beginning that it was this motivating force. That was the reason for which he gave his son to die for all of us. Now, this raises a question right here at the outset. It's a tough one. As a matter of fact, I was reading this, and I thought, boy, this is a hard one, but we got to go there. Because if God loves all of humanity, if he loves everyone, then why are some condemned for eternity to a place called hell? Now, it's a hard question. I'm going to give you the short answer, and then I'm going to illustrate it. You see, even though he's a loving father, even though he loves everyone, he's also just. And because he is just, people will have to pay the penalty for their sins. That's why the most grievous sin that anyone can commit is the sin of unbelief. So God is this perfect judge. Now let me illustrate this a little further. You see, if a judge is sitting on a bench and that judge has decided, you know what, from now on, 
I'm not going to I'm not going to uphold the law. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to I'm just going to dismiss every case. Now I'm going to let everybody go free. You see, if a judge did that, he would quickly be removed. And why is that? Well, it's because he's a bad judge. He's not doing his job. And because God is the perfect judge, he will hold people accountable for the sin of unbelief. But see, this is a loving judge. And here's what happened. This perfect judge, he looked all over that courtroom, and guess what? Everybody in the courtroom was guilty. You, me, everybody in that courtroom. But there was one person in that courtroom that was not guilty, and it was his own son. And this is what he did. He looked at all the guilty people in the courtroom, and he said, I'm going to take the collective penalties of all of you, and I'm going to place it squarely on my own son. He is going to pay the penalty for everyone else. And by the way, you all are going to be the ones who execute him. You see, that's what the loving judge did. Yes, he will hold people accountable for unbelief. And yes, he made a way for each and every person to be 100% exonerated from what it was that they've done. By the way, that's available for you right now. If you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, the only one who did not stand condemned, that completely paid the penalty for your sins, you can trust him right there in your seat simply by praying this there in your heart, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I'm trusting in your death, burial, and resurrection as the means by which I can be forgiven. You, you accept that free gift by faith. It's available to you right now. And no sin that you've ever committed, no law that you've ever broken is going to be held against you by God. You see, that's what the loving judge did. Yes, he holds the sin of unbelief. He holds us accountable. But at the same time, he made a way for us to not receive the punishment that we deserved. And I think Lewis Sperry Chafer, um, he said this very well in his systematic theology when he's talking about this, this fatherhood of all mankind. He makes a distinction between Christians and non-Christians because it's not the same fatherhood. And he says this, thus it is revealed that there is a form, and look at that carefully, there's a form of universal fatherhood and universal brotherhood which within its proper bounds should be recognized. But this, as important as it may be, is in no way to be confused with that fatherhood and brotherhood, which is secured by the regenerating work of the Spirit. There's a stark distinction between the fatherhood, the universal fatherhood that God has for all mankind, and the fatherhood He has for us who have been adopted as His sons and daughters through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God does love all mankind. He reiterates this in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, this is the loving God that we have. So there is this love that God the Father has for all humanity. And then there are several places in Scripture where it also speaks of God being the Father of many who are not persons. 
Like, what? Yeah. And not just the father of material beings, who, you know, people we can see, but also immaterial beings. And he's, we'll start with Hebrews 12, 9. It says there, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? God is the father of not just those who are here, but those who have passed away and whose spirits are now with him in heaven, the immaterial part of us that goes on after the body dies. And then in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, what does this mean? That, is, that phrase, coming down from the Father of lights, that is to say the Father of the starry sky, the one who created the stars, and he's unchanging. He doesn't change like the shadows. I love the way one commentary says that shadows from the sun shift, but not the one who made the sun. We heard in that song indescribable this morning, the God who made the sun, the one who created light. <clears throat> then in Job 38, 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, what's going on here? The sons of God. This is before God had created. As a matter of fact, this is describing the book of Job, the creation process. And it says that the morning stars are singing together and the sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God? This is a common way of describing the angels. The angels themselves are called the sons of God. So they also call God Father. The angels acknowledging here that God is their Father. Then in one more verse, uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's a mouthful. And what's it saying? That everything is emanating, everything comes from God the Father. As a matter of fact, there's this Latin phrase. He's called the fons divinitatis, the divine fountainhead from whom all things spring. All through the history of the church, it's been identified that God the Father is the one from whom everything came. No matter how fantastic any creation of man may be, guess what? It's coming from that mind that God created. It all comes from Him. So He's the Father of all creation. He made all things. Then secondly, God is the Father of Jesus. Now, in what sense is He the Father of Jesus? And I want to go to the Nicene Creed here. We talked about this last week. It says there that the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of substance with the Father. Now, what's all that mean? It means that for all eternity, God the Father has been the Father of Jesus Christ. There has never been a time when He was not the Father of Jesus. The two of them have coexisted for all of eternity. He is the eternal Father of the eternal Son. They say it right there, begotten of His Father before all worlds. Now, begotten has hung some people up in the past. 
Some took that to mean that it must have been meant Jesus was born, right? All those genealogies in the Old Testament, so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. But that's not what this means. It literally means one and only. That Jesus is unique. There is none other like him. He's the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And that's what the writers of Nicaea were pointing out. The eternal Son of the Father. So then what's this relationship like between Father and Son? This these two that have existed for all eternity. We get some insight into this in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. And it says there, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, they're, they're talking um, to Christ. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. We're always wanting a sign, aren't we? God, just give us something. Jesus said this. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father, and then listen to this part, who dwells in me does his works. What does this mean? Uh, what was Philip expecting? Now, in all likelihood, Philip was wanting something like a burning bush. He was wanting what's called a theophany. We talked about a theophany a few months ago. A theophany is a representation of God. For example, in the Old Testament, he shows up to Moses as a burning bush. Sometimes he would show up as something called the angel of Yahweh. These are theophanies. They're representations of God on earth. That's probably what Philip's wanting, but Jesus is saying, look, you've got something better than a burning bush. You've got God in the flesh standing right in front of you. I like what John Tenney said about this. No material image or likeness can adequately depict God. Only a person can give knowledge of him since personality cannot be represented by an impersonal object. You see, we got so much more of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are very blessed to be living on this side of the resurrection. We've got insights that the rest of them never, ever had. Now, some have taken this passage to mean that Jesus and the Father were the, the same person. I had some very lovely uh, Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my house a few weeks ago, and we had a good conversation about this. And I'm, by the way, I pointed them back to the Nicene Creed because their first argument is, well, Jesus said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, that is not to say that they are the same person. Last week, we talked about something called modalism. Remember modalism? It's bad, okay? It's bad. Modalism is bad, and it turns God uh, into one person as opposed to three persons, but this isn't true, and it says there in verse 10, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, we talked about that. And then, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So, the Father and Son abide in one another. Well, what does that mean? This was something the early church really struggled with, this mutual indwelling. So they came up with a word to describe this idea of the Father being in the Son, the Son being in the Father. As a matter of fact, they'll bring the Holy Spirit in and say there's this mutual indwelling among the persons of the Trinity. And they came up with this word, perichoresis, okay? 
Now, you should be scratching your head. Again, Chad, you bring these words in. Well, this is what it means. Peri literally means around. And look at the word choresis. It means dance in chorus. Now, remember, they are doing their best to come up with language to describe these infinite beings and how they interact together. That's not an easy thing to do. And this was the, if you can come up with a better word, by all means, do it. But again, for about 18, 1,700 years or so, this has been the best thing anybody's come up with. It means that each member of the Godhead indwells the other without confusion or personal distinction. Now, I like to think about this in terms of a marriage. If you've been around a couple that's been married a long time, it's like they're just kind of dancing to the same tune. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of the aspects of God are in this mystery of marriage. Remember when it says, Paul wrote it, there is a, myst a mystery to God joining two people together. And there's this dance that goes on, and that's how they're describing the persons of the Trinity, in this sort of dance, marching to the same tune, Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. He's giving him all authority. So this is a picture of the Father's fatherhood of Jesus. Again, it, it's not easy, but we're talking about God here, okay? That, that's not an easy subject. And then finally, God is the Father of all Christians. God is the Father of all Christians. See, when you and I trusted Christ as our Savior, we entered into this family. And when we entered into this family, we now receive the fatherhood of God in a very particular and special kind of way. There's a, a, a sharp distinction between the fatherhood that you now have as being a child of God compared to what it was. Because you are an object of love. And in that, there, there's a lot of, of means. I'm going to go through three, three ways that God shows his fatherhood to all Christians. As a matter of fact, there's, in many ways, this is the way a father, an earthly father, would love their child as well. And first of all, he provides loving correction. He provides loving correction. And this comes through in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. We looked at one of these verses already. It says there, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, yeah, I'm thankful, frankly, that I had a dad that loved me enough to discipline me. It was not pleasant at the time. I remember when he told me, don't jump on the couch or else I'm going to spank you. And I jumped on the couch and he spanked me. Nobody likes that. But he loved me enough to do that. He didn't like it either. Now I get to be on that end of things. I frankly don't like it either. I love my son enough that I'm going to discipline him. 
And I love what David Jeremiah said once. He said this, I heard it years ago, that God whispers to us through suffering, and he screams at us through pain. How does he get our attention, you may ask? Well, he uses his mysterious ways. Sometimes the church has to step in and discipline someone. Sometimes it can come from a a loving rebuke from a friend. Sometimes you can become convicted by reading the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is in the the, the business of convicting you as well. Timothy Keller said this in a tweet. A trial can be God's discipline if it requires patience, faith, and obedience and helps us to grow. Are you going through a trial right now? Is it a difficult time? Are you struggling? Well, guess what? The the joy we can have is that God is disciplining us. Yes, it is not pleasant. No one ever chooses discipline. But God loves us enough. He loves us enough not to leave us the way that he found us. Secondly, like a good father, God provides for our needs. He provides for our needs. We see this in Matthew 7, 11. He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, this is coming at the end of a series of verses uh, where Christ is challenging His listeners. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus was challenging His listeners, pray and ask God for things. Be persistent. He's saying, don't give up. God enjoys giving us good gifts and blessings. It doesn't mean he's going to give us everything we want. Paul didn't get everything he asked for. As a matter of fact, Christ asked at the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. But persist in prayer. Think about when you watch your kids on Christmas morning. In reality, who's having more fun? Now, granted, you may be bleary-eyed and you were up all night and you're putting together something or another, but you love seeing that look come across their face, that great big smile when they get to open up that thing that they were wanting so badly. God does it the same way. He loves to see you enjoying the gifts that he's given you. He provides for our needs and he loves to give us even blessings on top of that. And then finally, he welcomes us back. He welcomes us back. He always welcomes us back. In Luke chapter 15, you can read about the story of the prodigal son. And in that story, we have a young man who decided he wanted his inheritance right now. So he went to his dad and said, Dad, just give me my money. And the dad does it. He goes out. And if you know the story, he squanders everything. He loses all the money. He's He wastes it on wine and women and song, and so he says, you know what, I am so low. I'm just going to go back to my dad, and maybe he'll hire me on like a ranch hand, and I'll just get to work there. But the dad does so much better than that. So in this passage, the son's having a conversation with himself, and we step into this conversation in verses 19 and 20. This is the son talking to himself. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's saying this to himself. Then he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We've all screwed up. Daily I screw up. But guess what? 
He's always there to welcome me back. Again and again and again and again and again. God is that loving Father. He's not waiting for you to screw up so he can zap you, right? I always thought that, man, if I screw up, he's just going to zap me. He may discipline, but he is standing there with arms wide open to welcome back each and every one of his children. So he loves us. He welcomes us back. This father is constantly on watch for our return, running to us with joy when we turn our back on him. So then how do I respond to God as my father? You do it by accepting the love of the father. You simply accept the love of the father. Uh, he loves us endlessly. As a matter of fact, there's been nights when I've woke up in the middle of the night and I feel this heavy burden. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. I'm either feeling insecure about something or I thought I screwed something up the day before or I'm going to screw something up the next day. And I'll just keep telling myself, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. And that truth in and of itself has put me back to sleep. So accept the love of the Father. He loves you. He loves you more than anybody does, like a loving dad would. And I want to close with this, this image. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the documentary called March of the Penguins. But it, this, it's this detailed story of basically the life of a penguin. I, I do not envy a penguin, by the way. This is not a great way to live. But these penguins, eventually they go to, they go to Antarctica to... Um, to mate, and then they'll lay a single egg. This, this penguin pair gets together, and they will have a, a single egg. And at, at one point, the mother penguin will pass the egg to the father penguin. As a matter of fact, you can see the dad. They're both lovingly looking at their egg there. It's sitting on the, f- the feet of the dad. The dad will let his gut sort of hang over the egg. And he will stand there with that egg on his feet for two months. Horrendous winds are going to blow. It'll get to about negative 80 degrees. The father's not going to eat during those, that two-month period. But the entire time, he will stand there with that egg until the mother returns who's going out and getting food. Now, why does the father penguin do that? He does that for one reason. He does it for the sake of the chick that's in that egg. Why did our loving father sacrifice his one and only son to pay for all of our sins? Just, it was one reason and one reason only, because he dearly loved each and every one of us. Please pray with me. God, we thank you. Father, we thank you for the love, a love that we can scarcely comprehend more than any parent or sibling or friend or spouse has ever shown is the the love that you have for us. I pray that we would find rest in that love. I pray that we would uh, seek that love. I pray that we would live in that love and dwell on that love that you have for us. A love that would sacrifice a son for the love of others. 
We thank you for this wonderful gift of salvation that you've given us, Father. And it's in the holy and precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may hope in him. Thank you for being here and have a great day.